Jesus says that his time has come, he says, now my heart is troubled. And this really did hit me. Like It really hit me in a new way. I've read that before, but I suddenly realized what that meant. And I was thinking about the fact that we often feel a bit ashamed when we feel troubled, you know, when we feel overwhelmed or stuck in indecision or confused or upset. But we can... Okay, thank you, darling. <laughs> uh, we can think that God and Jesus are kind of like tutting impatiently at us from their like undisturbed state of peace. But Jesus felt troubled when he was on earth. Uh, Tom Wright writes, Yes, the word that had become flesh, the one in whom the Father's own love and power was truly seen, the one who healed the sick, turned water into wine, opened blind eyes and raised Lazarus to life, he was troubled, deeply troubled, troubled right down to his heart. Which means he understands when we feel troubled, which means that we do not need to feel ashamed. He is not tutting impatiently at us, he is reaching out his hand to us just like he always does. And he's reaching out his hand to us from a place of understanding. So my prayer today is that no one should feel ashamed of feeling troubled. That we would know that he is reaching out to us from a place of understanding. And I also pray that we would reach out our hands to those who are around us who are troubled whether it's from a place of understanding, you know, if, if we have experience that means that we get it, or that we would reach out our hands from a place of love to our family and to our friends who are feeling troubled, or that we would reach out our hands simply because we are in the right place at the right time because God has put us there. And I'd like to pray for compassion for ourselves, that we would ask for help when we need it and that we would not feel ashamed and compassion for others, and for promptings, that God would give us a shove when there's someone in our lives, or even just someone we meet by chance, that needs someone to reach out to them, just the way that God has reached out to us and daily reaches out to us. So I'll just say a prayer, if that's all right. Yeah, God, you're so big, and you surprise me all the time. I learn so much about so many new things all the time that Jesus felt troubled. I think sometimes we can feel ashamed and we feel like we have to hide it from you when we're not sure and when we have doubt. But the fact that you lived in a body and you had a mind and a stomach and all these things that we have and you experienced the things that we experience and you experienced a troubled heart over what you were going through. It means so much to know that you know how we feel and that you are not tired of us. You do not get tired of us. And I just pray for everyone in this church and in the whole church, Lord, that you'd help us not to feel ashamed, to really feel, out, feel you reaching out your hand to us. And I do pray that we would reach out our hands to others out of a place of understanding, love, or just knowing yeah, the overflowing love that you've given us, that we would pass it on. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Liz.
But in John chapter 16, in your journeys through John's Gospel, John 16, and I'm going to read from verse 1, not the whole chapter, but some of it. And our title this morning is The Spirit and the World. So Jesus is continuing to talk and encourage his disciples. He wants them see, to see them through this very traumatic time. And he's encouraging them to see the big picture, to go beyond what is about to happen, to go right through. Because if they fail, if they collapse, if in any way they go back to the old way of life, then his whole project will come to an end. It's all going to be invested in these 12 people, now 11. And if they haven't got something to go on, it's not going to work. So he's still encouraging them, and he writes, and he says this, All this I have told you, so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the hour is coming when those who kill you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when their hour comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. None of you asks me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to be. He will glorify me, because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. In verse 14 it says, He will glorify me. And on the basis of that particular verse and others like it, some people find it hard to say, Father, glorify your name. Son, glorify your name. And then they come to the Spirit one and find that difficult because it says glorify his name. But what we must remember is the Spirit is totally and completely God. He is divine. Father, Son and Spirit. So we must never think 
that the Spirit is in any way less than the Father, that he is in any way less than the Son. There is an order in the Trinity, but it's an order that they choose among themselves. And if we in any way get the idea that the Spirit is somehow less than the Father, less than the Son, we are doing him a grave disservice. He is to be worshipped and adored and glorified. The Spirit glorifies the Son. The Son glorifies the Father. The Father glorifies the Son. It's a, it's a dance of glory. It's an interreaction. Inter it's wonderful. So we must never think that the Spirit is a kind of optional extra for certain churches that we can dispense with at any time. Because this is the key thing. They're not going to make it on their own. And in Ezekiel 36, as Ezekiel gets into his period of his prophecy where he's encouraging the people in the midst of Babylon, he has God saying, I will take your hearts of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you that you may want to do my will. Without the Spirit, my friends, we cannot do it. We'll never last a moment, spiritually speaking. Oh, we can stand up and walk around, but we can't do anything worthwhile. The Spirit, the church without the Spirit is as nonsensical as Jesus without the Spirit. A Christian without the Spirit is as nonsensical as Jesus without the Spirit. We need the Spirit. And this is the promise Jesus is giving us today. But our passage uh, the heading I was given is the spirit and the world. Now in chapter 14, when we were in there, and he was talking about the spirit of truth, verse 17, 14 verse 17, the spirit of truth, he said this, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. So in a sense, God can't give the spirit to the world. He can only give the spirit to his people who are going to live in the world. So this is the 11 plus others who will be the beginning of the church. But it, of course it's passed down. Pentecost was a one-off event. But in exactly the same way that the cross was a one-off event, that generations later, thousands of years later, can accept by faith and be part of. I have been crucified with Christ, says Paul. He wasn't there. But every Christian since that has been said that. So Pentecost came that not only that generation, but all generations of God people. And we can be baptised by the Spirit by faith as we appropriate that truth. The book of Acts is about to explode on the scene and the transformation of these fearful disciples is incredible. What Jesus had begun to do and to teach is going to be continued in his band of Jesus' followers. And so in the end of this gospel, even before you get to Pentecost, John was at Pentecost. He knows when Pentecost happens. He's not confused. But in chapter 20, as he appears to them on that first day of the week, he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. It was a promise. The Spirit is coming. It didn't happen then. It happened at Pentecost. And John isn't confused. But it's a promise. This is what you really need. So he's explaining a little bit about what that will be. He's got so much he wants to tell them, but he can't do it all in one go. I've told you this so that when their hour comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. 
I didn't tell you this from the beginning because I was with you. So all the time Jesus has been with them, he has been the target of opposition. He has been the one who's received the animosity. They've been set free. And even as he's arrested in Gethsemane, he will protect these disciples. He will say, who do you want? And they will say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he will say, I am he. And at the name of God, they all collapse. But in doing so, he's protecting his disciples. Let them go, and they go. And they're continued. So this is not the end. Though they will think it's the end, they will revert to fishing in Galilee, some of them, according to later part of this gospel. But this is not the end, this is a beginning. He has shown them by his own life and ministry the way of effective living, to be utterly dependent upon the Father. I only do what my Father tells me to do. I only say what my Father tells me to say. I only say it in the way he says it. And these are hints for us, my friends. I remember years ago, the preacher, one of the first things he stood up on this particular occasion, he looked around at this group of church leaders and he said, if you're doing anything that God didn't tell you to do, stop it. That was his first opening phrase. And you could hear all these men and women sort of taking an intake of breath. He says, only do what God tells you to do. The rest is wasting your time and other people's. Just do what God gives you to do. The disciples are filled with grief. They're focused on themselves, which is often what happens when we are in grief. But Jesus wants them to see the bigger picture. So he says, very truly I tell you, it's for your good I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. It's not that the Son and the Spirit cannot coexist on the earth. That would be nonsensical. What he's saying is, he cannot come because my part of the process of salvation hasn't yet finished. And when it's finished, and I ascend to, back to my Father, then the Spirit can come, and the next phase of the salvation story can begin. Many of us might from time to time have thought that it would have been good, maybe even better than today, to have lived in the days of Jesus when we could have seen him face to face and experienced it all then. He says it wouldn't. It's better for us now. So now the next phase can begin. When Jesus has finished the work he came to do, which is to live, to die, to rise again, and to be exalted to the right hand of the Father. That's what he came to do. And when he's done it, the Spirit can come. So, this is what he says in verse 8. Um, when he comes... He will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin because people do not believe in me. About righteousness because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Now, Jesus didn't come in order to condemn the world but that the world might be saved through him. That is still the case. That is still the case. He didn't come that people might be condemned, but that they might be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, in his own presence, he has been a physical 
visible rebuke to what is going on around. And people who had eyes to see that were flocking to him. Those religious leaders who had thought things were better didn't. They criticised him and will take him to the cross and think they've got rid of him. But when he leaves, how will people be convicted of sin? It is not for God's people to convict people of sin because it's the Spirit's job. But how will that happen? Let me suggest to you, he's suggesting that here. He proves the world to be in the wrong about sin, righteousness and judgment by doing so through the people to whom he has come. The church. You and me. How will this happen? He will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin because people do not believe in me, he says. People will ultimately when they stand before God, be judged according to how they have treated Jesus. We often think it's about the sins we commit. Of course that's important. But before you get to that, it's all about how people treat Jesus. This is why you can take every other religion of the world and say, the key question is not what you believe about X, Y and Z, it's about what you believe about Jesus. Let's not get confused about all these other issues. It's the issue of Jesus. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, says John 3.18. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already, whatever else they've done. Because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Now the world tries to ignore Jesus. To relegate him to being an ancient, helpful man who did nice things and spoke kindly and was good to children and all that sort of stuff. But he won't be so easily set aside. He has appointed his followers to testify to him. And the testimony is not about that. First of all, it's about the life lived. Bearing a testimony. Speaking about God from a life that has integrity. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, says Jesus. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The witness is not saying that when I was 24 I stood up in front of a church and I told them how I became a Christian. That's not what he's talking about. The witness we're bearing is saying there is only one God and one Lord who is king over all the earth. That's the testimony we bear. That's the witness we bear which is not quite so radical in our society, they might look, think we're a bit cranky, but can you imagine the first century where Jesus was in competition with Caesar who had on the coins Jesus, son of, sorry, Caesar, son of God, divine. And you stand up and say, but he's not, and never will be. There is one God. That's the testimony they're bearing. Our task is to live for Jesus, to demonstrate by how we live, that he truly is king of all the earth. If my life doesn't bear witness to that truth, then I am deceiving myself and misleading others. So the testimony that I give is the way by which the Spirit presents the truth to the world around. The world may not believe in Jesus, but we do. And we believe 
things that should change our lives so that we are a loving provocation to the world around us. We are the presence of Jesus in the midst of our communities. The church is not here to perpetuate ourselves, not to grow a bigger church, not to bear witness to itself, not to promote ourselves. It is to bear witness to Jesus, isn't it? to live for Jesus, for our lives to be totally given for Jesus. This is the way in which the Spirit will convict the world around. That people will see among them an alternative way of living. So if they see the same in the church as they see outside the church, why would they bother to join? Absolutely no point at all. We have to be different, don't we? We have to be different. To live differently in every way. This is challenging stuff, my friends, isn't it? Every time you get near to Jesus, he challenges you really deeply. And makes you feel both inspired to be more and unnerved by what he's asking. So the spirit-filled believer, there is nothing better than to live and to speak for Jesus. And for the spirit-filled church, there's nothing better than to declare the wonders of Jesus who's called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. So people need to see what the alternative is. And he will convict the world in regard to sin because they have not believed in the Son, the only Son. But we are here to be that loving conviction not for us to point the finger and complain we do so much of that and it's not our task it really isn't our task the church is forever doing that and it's not for us to do that it's the spirit's task to convict people of sin but he does that by showing people the alternative how did jesus do it did he go around saying you're wrong you're wrong you're wrong he didn't do that did he he was very, very strong with the Pharisees because they thought they were absolutely right and they needed to be put right. But the ordinary people never got a finger in their face, did they? He showed them something different and they flocked because they could instantly see the difference and say, that's what I want, not this, that. There's an alternative. And when he explained to them about what it was, they couldn't get enough of it. He's also going to prove the world to be in the wrong about righteousness because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. The world says, truth is, whatever you want it to be. Isn't that what people say? There is no objective truth. But we would disagree. We would say truth is whatever God says it is. Isn't that right? There's only truth, one truth, and it's God's truth. That there are such things as right and wrong, and we have chosen to live God's way. So in judging and condemning Jesus, his enemies are saying that his way was wrong and their way was right. If you want to be right with God, that's not the way. This is the way. Remember, he is executed on behalf of the religious leaders. And they think their way is right, but they couldn't be more wrong. So he's going to prove the world to be wrong about righteousness because we are going to demonstrate there's another way to be right with God. It's got nothing whatever to do with us getting better before God will accept us. 
but that we are put right because God makes that a gift to us. He declares us right because of what Jesus has done. And then we live right and live under the blessing and beneficence of God. As you read the gospel accounts, Jesus is the one to whom clouds flocked, drawn by the quality and attractiveness of his life. It's still that strange thing, isn't it? Of Jesus maintaining his perfect holiness, while at the same time drawing people of utter sinfulness in their droves to him, so that they wanted to change. Isn't this an extraordinary thing? Instead of his holiness repelling them, it actually attracts them. There's a conundrum, isn't it? And in a way, it attracts them in a way, not just to say, oh, aren't you good, but aren't you good, can you do something for me? Even if they can't put it in religious terms. So that was one of the criticisms that the religious leaders levelled at him, that he eats with the kind of people you should eat with if you're a holy person. But instead of his holiness being tainted by their sinfulness, quite the opposite happened. Their sinfulness was dramatically affected by his holiness. So the church, made up of people whose lives have been broken, damaged, distorted, marred by sin and wickedness, but who have been changed, renewed, recreated, born again, marvellously made new, those lives bear witness to a righteousness not of our own making, but a gift of God. Those people, the church of Jesus Christ, people like you and me, would show that in giving up all our attempts to make God love us, and instead accepting his gift of love, will change our lives and will change other people's lives too. Telling our story about that. This is how I once was, but... This is how I am now, and you can see it. And that's what people want. So preachers like me must be very careful about telling people that the gospel is all about trying harder to do better. It isn't at all like that. It's being changed, and then you want to do things in the power of the Spirit that will bring glory and honour to God. If the world does not or cannot see the real thing in the people of God, then it will carry on doing things its own way, won't it? But if they see the church of Jesus Christ full to bursting with the Spirit of God, overflowing with love for the community, caring for their neighbours, living a completely different life that isn't controlled by X or Y, which are the normal ways it's doing it, but by the love of God, where the things that draw people into arguments and fights and wars don't do that among God's people because we go by a different principle, then they will see something worth having and they will want something of God. So we are here to show the world their idea of righteousness is not the way. There is an alternative way. And he can convict the world of sin in regard to righteousness through our lives. He will prove also the world to be in the wrong about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. The world rolls blissfully and ignorantly on 
ignorant of the coming day when every person of every age from every place will stand before the God they thought didn't exist and have to account for themselves. A judgment day is coming and they think it isn't. They think it isn't. So, men standing on seafronts with boards over their back saying, repent for the judgment is nigh or something like that is a crude but accurate way of presenting that truth but perhaps not as loving as it might be. It's just a bald statement done but nonetheless true in its own right. We will have to give account for everything we've done in, a, in this life. It is patently obvious that in this world and in this country people can commit sin and get away with it. They can commit crime and get away with it. Because our, like every other country, our judgment institutions, our human institutions of law and justice are not perfect in our country or in any other country because they're operated by human beings who are not perfect. But God's judgment is sure and firm and utterly inescapable. And it's important people know that. So as the confrontation that Satan brings against God's Son comes to a head upon the cross. It appears, by all accounts, to be a resounding success for the world, the flesh, and the devil. He is at last put to one side. But in that moment of apparent greatest triumph, Jesus now to the cross, Satan's fate is sealed. It is his utter defeat. This is how Paul puts it later on. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So at the time of Jesus speaking, the prince of this world stood condemned. In a little while, he would see his judgment meted out on the cross, and his defeat proves the outcome of judgment to come for all. So those who have renounced the devil and all his works, who have been set free from his grip and his influence, show by their lives both the judgment to come and the way to avoid it. So these wonderful Wesleyan hymns and old hymns that speak of this truth, we're, we're coming back into favoritism again now. We bear testimony that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free, so we should no longer let ourselves be burdened by a yoke of slavery. So the people of God are the vehicle through whom the Spirit of God will convict the world. And we have the task, and the motivation in all this, of course, is this. It is to love people into the kingdom. So it is, this is miles away from us going into the world this week and finding as many people we can point the finger at as possible. That is not what it's about. We are saying, Holy Spirit of God, let my life be a loving provocation to the people I meet in order, in order that somehow or other you may move in their lives and I may have the unutterable joy of answering their questions when they say, what must I do to be saved? 
How can I have what you have? My life is utterly broken. Is there any hope? When you stir people's hearts up like that, when you give me words of love and grace and truth that will enable them to say, well, let me tell you, I once had no hope, but let me tell you, there's an answer to this. Can I introduce you to Jesus? Many of you are very good at that. And as you go into this week, may God, through his spirit, be stirring up the lives of folk you meet as they watch you at work. It was one of the ways my brother was, one of my brothers was brought to the, into the kingdom. He was a nurse, nursing those who are mentally unable to cope with things for themselves in a hospital, which is a tough task. He loved doing it, but it was a tough task. He said you would be taking out these three clients, they will call them, and he and his colleague will be getting them ready to go out. And you get one complete, with these adults, ready. And then you'd be going for the second one, whereby the first one would soil himself. And so you'd have to change him all over again and get him ready. It would take you hours to do it. And he said, James, his colleague, James was unutterably patient with these people. He never lost his temper, never gave any impression of being distressed about this. He would just go back and go. And my brother, who got these things made him very tense. In the end, just James's life made him say, how is it that you can be at peace, full of grace and love at a time when you must be falling apart inside? And James says, would you like me to tell you? Shall we have a cup of coffee? Let me explain. And that was the way one of my brothers became a Christian. James's life in the moments of, of difficulty, challenged, it was the Holy Spirit stirring up my brother inside and saying, look at you and look at him. Wouldn't you rather be like him? And James wasn't pretending to be in any way a perfect man. Not at all. But he was saying to my brother, I'm not on my own in this. There's one who helps me. So we bear testimony through that indwelling hoping our spirits. So we are to live lives of gentle provocation, of gracious confrontation, of joyful in transformation, of loving incarnation. Sounded quite good that really, didn't it? I was quite pleased with that line. That's why I had to read it. That sort of thing. Do you get the idea that we are confronting people in a loving way? We are wanting transformation in a gracious way. We are provoking them, but in a gentle way. Hopefully in the way that Jesus himself would do it. That people might come and be changed. So as we go into the world this week, my friends, and thinking of the spirit in the world, the spirit has been given to us, that's John 14, but also to the world in chapter 16, because that's where we are. And God's heart's desire is still to see people come into the kingdom. And his chief way of doing that is still through the lives of ordinary people like you and me. Doing ordinary things all week. Meeting people. People who get tongue-tied. People who can't remember stuff. And these passages will tell you that the Spirit is being given to remind us. So even those of us for whom the memory is going... The Spirit can still remind us of what we need to know. So when we pray to be filled with the Spirit, it's not just so we can have the fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit in a way that's for us. It is for the world. 
that we go into the world and say, reach people and even use me. Help me look out for those circumstances whereby you are stirring up the lives of other people. That's wonderful, isn't it? Why don't you just sit there for a moment? You might want to close your eyes. When he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will speak what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. All that belongs to the Father is mine and the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. Father, may Jesus give to us through the Spirit today all that we need to live lives to your glory this week that the Spirit of God may work in the lives of those around us and bring them rejoicing into your kingdom. And we ask it for your namesake. Amen.